We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Welcome back to Sorted Cinema. This week we're going to be taking a look at Terry Gilliam's Brazil, starring Jonathan Price and Robert De Niro and Bob Hoskins and a lot of other people. Here's a clip from Brazil. The rules of the game are laid down. We all have to play by them. Look at you, Sam. Whatever happened to you? An empty desk is an efficient desk. Let a friend tell you. Your life is going wrong. Now shape up! Do cooperate. Think of your mother. As Anybody seen Sam Lowry? Sam, it's time for you to grow up and accept responsibility. You'll never get anywhere in a suit like that. Yes, yes, yes. Sam, what are we going to do with you? You must have hopes, wishes, dreams. No, nothing. Not even dreams. I don't know. I don't know what I want. You won't believe this. Um, I know it's going to sound incredible, but um, but I've been dreaming about you. I mean, I love you. In my dreams, I love you. from 1985's Brazil, directed by Terry Gilliam and written by Terry Gilliam, Tom Stoppard, and Charles McCune. All right, joining me this week, uh, my name is Patrick Murphy, of course, uh, host, and joining me as always is Ricky D. Hello, Patrick. So excited to talk about this movie. I know, this should be a good one, because also joining us is former Sorted Cinema Sound On Sight podcast host Simon Howell, who is apparently a massive fan of Brazil. The first thing we always ask whatever we start off the Sword Cinema podcast is, uh, well, Rick, you picked this movie, so why did you pick Brazil? Well, I picked this movie because Simon is the original co-host of the Sword Cinema podcast, and I wanted to get him back on the show. It is the 35-year anniversary of Brazil this week, at least the original theatrical UK cut, and I believe it is his favorite movie, if not one of his favorite movies. So it just gave us the chance to get Simon on the show and talk about what some people consider to be a masterpiece, what I think is an incredible achievement, but a movie that I just don't necessarily enjoy watching. So this is kind of a trap, in other words. 
we should probably start off with Simon then and figure out exactly why some people think this is a masterpiece. So Simon, first of all, why is this your favorite? Do you think this is a masterpiece? <laughs> and then why is this one of your favorite movies? Um, when I was, I would say 13 or 14, I saw Brazil for the first time and it's the movie, if not, I mean, at, at the very least one of the movies that sort of inducted me into the cult of cinephilia. And it, I mean, certainly the one that stood out for that. So for years, when people asked me what my favorite movie was, because, you know, we used to work at the video store, people would ask this all the goddamn time. And when you're serious about movies, that's a really annoying question because, you know, how can you narrow it down to just one? So because it stood out of my mind as the one that kind of inducted me, Brazil was always my canonical answer for favorite film and also because it was a film that i sort of came to independently and had seen several times and had always seen different things in it felt like uh, no one told me in advance about it no one um no one said oh you got to see this movie i just sort of saw it and i saw it on television and i rented it a few times so it, it felt very personal to me wait a minute you saw it on tv first not on, not first, but I remember it being on television. Oh. I don't think I saw the TV cut. Okay. I think I saw it on television uh, in its original theatrical format. And we should mention there are several cuts of this movie. <laughs> but yeah. I think most of the ones you can buy now are pretty much the 132-minute cut that I think that Gilliam super, supervised that finally got uh, his director's cut. Uh, yeah, so there are we should we should clarify there are three versions of the film. There's the European cut, also known as the final cut, which is 142 minutes. There is the supervised uh, theatrical cut, which he got, which he was able to trim 10 minutes out. They wanted it under 125, which he couldn't do. And then there's the 89 minute Love Conquers All, Sid Scheinberg edit, which I actually still haven't seen. I was hoping to make time for it before the show, and I. I just haven't done it yet. Both the final cut and the 89-minute cut are available on the Criterion release. So can I just jump in and ask what you guys watched? Because I've seen all three cuts in the past, but I didn't really even remember most of the movie. So I rewatched the movie twice, but I ended up watching the Blu-ray release, which is the original European cut, which is the longest cut. So I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. like, what did you guys watch in order to prepare for this podcast today? So Amazon has the 132-minute cut. I, I, I didn't see the other ones available, so that was the one that I watched. I watched the uh, the final cut. I was hoping, because I, I own the, um, the, the old three-disc Criterion version, I was actually hoping that all three cuts were on it. Uh, unfortunately, it only has the final cut and the Love Conquers All cut. My recollection is that the theatrical cut, which is 10 minutes shorter than the final cut, is the best one. Um, but the final cut is the most readily available now, I think, in most places. I will say this. I have seen the TV cut, and I'm not a fan at all. And that is why I was wondering, like, if you watched it first on TV and you ended up loving this movie as much as you do, I, I would find that really odd. But the cut that Patrick saw, I think, is by far the best cut because I think – the version I saw is a little too long. I think the movie's a little too long, period. But adding an, an additional 10 minutes doesn't help. Yeah, I'm trying to think of where where it would need some additional minutes. There, there are some things in the second half that maybe go by a little too quickly, um, 
where you could have used some time to sort of flesh things out. And I'm not sure if the movie would have felt longer if, you know, it, it might've even paced it better. Uh, it all depends, you know, sometimes a longer movie can actually feel shorter. Um, yeah, but I, what I really want to know is, okay, so th this is a really, I have not seen this movie in a long time and I remember liking it. I think I saw it, you know, when I was in college, that was, that was probably the last time that I watched this movie. Um, so rewatching it was very, very interesting, totally different perspective on this, this thing. Um, what is your opinion now, Simon of Brazil? I think my opinion now, I mean, what I call it, my favorite film, I think the mature answer to what is your favorite film is like, don't ask me for one film that's dumb, um, you know, which is what I should have said at the time. Um, I, I don't have any one one favorite film, but uh, Brazil will always hold a special place in my heart for, like I said, inducting me into cinephilia. My feeling on it now rewatching it is, I mean, more or less the same as it's always been, which is. I, I think what I love so much about Brazil is that it exists in a genre of one. I mean, it shares a lot of DNA with a lot of other stories. Clearly, it was inspired by the looming um, milestone of 1984, uh, which Gilliam had in mind. He says he's never read 1984, which I actually totally believe. Uh, it's sort of you know inspired by the idea of 1984, right? Um, you couldn't find two more different um creative people than George Orwell and Terry Gilliam. You know, Gilliam doesn't have a serious-minded political bone in his body, whereas, you know, Orwell went to Spain to fight fascists. Uh, Gilliam, meanwhile, is a total fantasist. He doesn't have any interest in uh, in sort of real politique. So when I say it's in a genre of one, I mean it, it borrows from so much. It's a dystopian satire comedy with uh, elements of uh, terror and horror, especially in the scoring in various parts. It's kind of a sci-fi film. It has elements of fantasy. It's a Christmas movie, which I always forget until I rewatch it. The entire film is set in the holiday season. Um, it it satirizes consumerism and totalitarianism and um, and corporate values and religion and uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's touching on so many things. It's doing so much. Um, you know, the criticism that Ebert lobbed at it, which is that it, it was sort of like Gilliam took every idea he ever had and threw them all in there at once willy nilly without consideration. Um, that's sort of what I like about it. It, it almost feels like um, it's the it's the kind of movie you make when you think you're never going to get this chance again. You're never going to get to make another film. So you throw all your ideas in there. Um, but I think Tom Stoppard especially helps the whole thing uh, cohere and uh, and keeps it from going off the rails, even if there are individual um, aspects that I still think are kind of half-baked. And I, I think the other reason that it's so special to me is because it's so obviously not a perfect film. Like, it couldn't possibly be perfect. It's trying to do too much. So I think... The other reason I value it so much is it sort of introduced me. You, you, you kind of can't not you, you can't watch it and not feel like a critic. You, you're, you're constantly it, it invites you to pick it apart and and do a deep reading of it and figure out what does and doesn't work and what you do and don't like because it contains so much and it asks so much of the viewer. It's a it's a really challenging film and no wonder it it provokes such a totally polarized response from audiences and critics because 
it's doing so much and the the odds that it's all going to work for you is pretty much nil. I think also it's because the film is so abrasive. Like it's in your yes. face and it's loud and it's begging you to hate it. I have a question for you, Patrick. So mm-hmm. uh, first of all, I just want to quickly say that it's interesting when Simon says that it felt like Terry Gilliam just tried to do everything because he felt like this was his one and only chance. And this might sound odd, but I, whenever I watch or think of Brazil, I always think of the fifth element and how Luc Besson went in to make that movie and tried to do as much as he could because he didn't think he would ever get another chance to do some sort of like epic sci-fi film. So I do appreciate Brazil. I do think it's a really good movie. I might not necessarily enjoy it as much as you guys. Uh, I also think that if you look at Terry Gilliam's run, Making Brazil... The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, The Fisher King, and Twelve Monkeys. I think those four films represent the director's best work, and I think it's his most fulfilled and satisfying works. Like, I don't know, maybe if you ask him what his favorite movies are that he made, he might choose one of those four movies, if not all four. My question for you, Patrick, is a lot of people say this movie's ahead of its time. And I'm like, is it really? Because in terms of like the story and the ideas and the themes, it's pulling from stories from from the past, like 1984. In terms of its visual look, it's pulling from Metropolis, Fritz Lang, even Orson Welles, like a movie like The Trial. And so it seems like he's he's inspired by different uh, cartoonists, animators, filmmakers, uh, authors, and he takes all these ideas and he just makes this epic, like two and a half hour uh, film that you know, has a lot to say. So I'm just wondering, do you think for its time, 1985, it was ahead of its time? No, I don't think so at all. I think the themes it's dealing with have been around forever. Uh, You know, somebody trying to break free and become an individual. I mean, that's, you could point back to romance novels of the 19th century that are, you know, about similar thing. Uh, Maybe not about the bureaucracy, but about, you know, stuffy English, um, you know, upper class or something like that. no, I don't think it's necessarily ahead of its time in theme or in visuals, even though I think the effects are absolutely stunning at times and still look amazing. <laughs> I mean, the shots of Jonathan Price's Sam Lowry flying are, are just I, I'm still wondering how how they were achieved. I, I don't know. They look so perfect, so perfect. Um, so but yeah, I, I think it's a it was described by uh, somebody I don't remember who as being like a. a a vision of, of 1984 from somebody in the, in the 1940s, um, which I think that – was that Terry Gilliam himself who said that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He said that when he was described. trying to make the movie, he wanted to make it seem timeless. So mm-hmm. they tried to make the movie set in 1984 because it was filmed in 1984, but from the, from the perspective of someone living in the 40s. And so that's why when you look at the production design and the set design, he mixes things from the past, present, and potentially future – so, because the movie at the start it says it takes place sometime in the twentieth century, but it doesn't yeah. specify exactly when or spe- specifically where. And it's completely anachronistic. Like there's there's typewriter. You know, people are their 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 consoles are made up of old fashioned typewriters, and then these uh, clear lenses that that serve as screens. Uh, just an absolute mix of technology. Yeah, I don't think it's one of those movies that. Uh, I don't think we'll ever well we'll get around to this, but the 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 look and the, the world that it's set in is not really reality any sense of reality, obviously. So um, it's hard to say that it's not ahead of time. It's time and thought, though. I don't think, um, 
or or like I say, or or visuals. It's just very Terry Gilliam. It's so Terry Gilliam. It's exactly what you think of when you think of Terry Gilliam movies. I really like the dream sequences. It's such a heavy contrast to the rest of the film. When you see Sam flying, he's got those Icarus-inspired wings, and it's a little quiet. I mean, there is like some moments in which like he gets attacked by these giant like stone-like beasts that come from out of the ground. But for the most part, it's more quiet than the rest of the film. And I just love the idea of this man that can't escape the world that he lives in. He can't escape the system. And so he has to turn to a dream. And I don't know if you guys agree, but I just... Like, I mean, you talk about the effects, and I agree. Like, for a movie that's made in 1985, I think, like, looking back on it, it doesn't seem dated. It doesn't seem... It does like it actually seems like the guy is flying. It looks like he has like a backpack yes. there because he does have sort of like a string or pole that you can see in the back, like you know, like in the back of the wings. Yeah, they're mechanical wings of some sort. You can see little, you know, there's there was some mechanical attachment. I honestly think that the flying looks better than anything that anyone would do today. For sure, but 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 I like the dream <laughs> sequences because it sets the main character, the protagonist, Sam Lowry. It sets him apart from the rest of the world because he actually has the capacity for imagination. He can dream. I mean. Maybe potentially there's other characters in this world that can and do, but we don't get to see them. But with Sam, what sets him apart from the rest of the cast is the fact that he does have an imagination. And that's what I like about those dream sequences. Although I will say that I don't think this guy is at all a good guy or a hero because he himself is part of the system. And he does do terrible things like he sort of he sort of is an accomplice to murder at one point, which, by the way, is one of the most gruesome disgusting kill sequences ever i'm talking about the shit sequence oh yes <laughs> well we don't know if they actually die but oh come on <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's he's trapped in the system you're right he's part of the system but the system has also made him desensitized to all of these things as well I, it's hard to call i still think of him as a hero he is the hero. He's somebody trying to break free. Now, is he a faulty hero? Absolutely. And he's weak-willed at times. He's cowardly at times. Uh, but he is proactive. And he is trying to change his life in some way. He's going for something that he wants for the first time in his life. Uh, instead of just... Well, he's stalking a girl who he's never met, who he sees from a distance... But she was in his dream. It's, that would be a weird thing. That <laughs> would be still, such a weird thing. He, I get I get it. And you're right. Like Because she does appear in his dream, therefore, that is why he's infatuated with this girl. But it is kind of odd that he does stalk her. I do like her reaction to him stalking her, like when she first actually does meet him. But I, I don't know. I, I mean, Simon, do you think he's a hero? Because I think everything he does is, is based out of selfishness. And I'm not entirely sure if that is how I would define a hero. It doesn't really matter. I'm just interested in knowing what you guys how you guys perceive the character. I think he's a hero to Terry Gilliam, I think is what's important. I think he's, he's, you know, uh, at one point in the documentary about the film, um, Scheinberg talks about how um, this character is clearly an analog for Gilliam. And he's completely right. Um, the, the one through line of all of Terry Gilliam's work is that he takes a very dim view of almost everything, um, there's there's a, a sense of nihilism in a lot of his work. The one thing that he doesn't take a dim view of, the one thing that he worships, is creativity and imagination. Um, everything else is um, 
an obstacle or get or a, a corrupter of that, right? And that's uh, very much what Brazil is about. So in in a way, it's the most it is it is the height of sort of G- Terry Gilliam thought, if you can say that. So I mean, it is is Sam Lowry to- it, you know totally sympathetic? I think in the hands of Jonathan Price, he's quite sympathetic. Um, but more importantly, is is he a hero? Um, whether or not we think he is, the film certainly thinks that he is. Yeah, I think you mm-hmm. nailed it, though. I think it's because Jonathan Price is so amazing in this movie. Like, I love his performance, and my favorite bits in the movie are the the the, the scenes in which we get to see his slapstick humor. We get to see yeah. his we get to see his Charlie Chaplin esque performance, or a performance that recalls the best work of Buster Keaton. But I think the thing is, is like creativity is stifled by bureaucracy. And that's what Terry Gilliam doesn't like because he is a creative. He is like this this artist. And like this movie criticizes uh, consumerism, like you said, office work. Uh, to me, by the way, this is a horror film because the mountains of paperwork that <laughs> that we, we actually like. I mean, we see it throughout the whole entire film, right? They're like covered in paper. Um, it's It's a world not unlike our world in which we they collect data and they're obsessed with collecting data you know the only difference is that they're not doing it through like the internet and i just like i mean how i mean it's just in so many ways it is so similar to our world today in 2020 even something as simple as trying to get good customer service you know you go to the store and they send you to this clerk and then that clerk sends you to the next clerk and that clerk sends you to the next clerk you need all kinds of like documents and paperwork and it's 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 just it's unbelievable the parallels between our world and this world. I mean, those problems existed back in 1985, but not to the degree in which they do today. But I do like the fact that the whole plot of the movie revolves around a bug in the system. Like, literally, a bug in the a system. A literal bug. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that uh, that opening scene is... Uh, <laughs> it's... It sets the tone completely for what's to follow, and it, it sets the tone for what kind of weirdness is going to follow. This, the everything about it, the way the, the movie's going to play out visually is all told to you right then and there, um, and the sense of humor, just the wicked, wicked, like you said, kind of a nihilist sense of humor. That's the thing; he he does have a nihilist take on a lot of things, but always with some kind of uh, levity to it. Not necessarily, you know, lightheartedness, but. Um, he finds that sad humor in everything. <laughs> and uh, that's the way this movie kind of plays out all over the place, right up through to the end, which is almost funny in a way, even though it's horrifying what ends up happening to Lowry. Um, it is kind of funny. I mean, the the ending of the film, I mean, the the whole tone of the film is so kind of dark and even despairing that to me, uh, there is a lot of humor in the film. There's a lot of, you know, double entendres and visual gags and slapstick and stuff. But in a way, the humor almost ends up making the movie feel darker or more disturbing because it's, um, you know, because its depths are so harrowing. I mean, late in the film, when you get that, um, you know, after the arrest and we get that series of first person shots from inside one of those elaborate straitjackets when um when sam is being interrogated and you see behind uh sort of that opaque plastic wall people essentially like dangling from the ceiling that's in that's in that's you know incredibly dark imagery worthy of 1984 itself so having that contrast of, of jokes with this incredibly dark material 
to me gives the humor um, kind of a disturbing edge that I find it difficult to articulate. Well, I think it's because you have mixed feelings. Like you're watching a movie that's so incredibly dark and twisted and it plays it for laughs at times. And so you want to laugh. Like, for example, the scene in which he goes back to visit the widowed wife of the man who was wrongly accused, tortured and later died. And it's technically like a devastating scene. She lost her husband. He's now dead. He was innocent. And he's just trying to like solve the problem by refunding her whatever it is, like the amount of cost for like the receipt. I forget what, what it is. They, exactly. they, they pay for their own interrogation. <laughs> and he's refunded. The guy overpaid apparently or was overcharged. When the movie ended, I'm like, okay. In one sense, that is a really bleak, depressing ending because we get this like final twist in which the only way to escape this world, the system is through insanity. But at the same time, I'm like, well, but the guy technically escaped and in his mind which i think is what really matters he's living in a better world so maybe his body <laughs> when he had, maybe maybe he had to sacrifice his body but in some ways i kind of feel like that is still it's not the happiest ending but it's still a happy ending for him in his mind even though technically it's not really happening if that makes any sense and then i, I read um i sent you guys a link so there was an interview with terry gilliam and he sees it the exact same way. For him, it's a happy ending. I mean, if you could see it that way, if getting a lobotomy and making you unable to actually acknowledge the real world is, is a happy ending, sure, you're lost in, a fa in your fantasy. And I guess he'll live out the rest of his days thinking that. But it won't be real. And we can get into the metaphysics of what is real and what is not anyway. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, it's – yeah, you can see it that way. I think the humor comes from recognizing the misery. I mean the human beings have been laughing at the, the tragedies that have been befalling them for you know thousands of years. And that's what makes Brazil so chuckle-worthy. I mean I find myself chuckling out loud at several parts. And it's because of how awful some of these things are. Uh, you recognize that as being very true in a, in a sense that it's, you know, it's satirized, obviously, but um, it, it's absolutely true uh, in its meaning. So that that to me is where the humor, of course, he was going to be lobotomized in the end. He had to be. So I, I do think that that's kind of funny, that that's the only way that he can now exist in this bureaucratic nightmare. He doesn't fit anymore. It, it It's the ultimate Terry Gilliam happy ending in a sense, because, as I said, um, you know, he, Gilliam uh, is not a he, he doesn't seem to have any faith in, in human society and in, you know, human politics. He uh, you know, there's there are terrorist bombings in this film, but we never meet the terrorists. Uh, we never uh, un understand what it is they want. Uh, it's entirely possible, in fact, that the bombings are being staged by the government. Mm -hmm. um, it's It's never directly stated, but it definitely did occur to me on this viewing of the film. 13 um, years or whatever they've been going on and it just seems a little little too long right for yeah it, it, it it seems to keep happening and at one point the the jill character asks him have you ever met a terrorist and it's true we never act we they just seem to happen no one ever seems to be hearing it out um and the ending uh, makes perfect sense to someone who um who, who has no faith in the potential for human society to ever um actually sort of transcend these issues and it's interesting that you know it the the film has sort of the the opposite of the ending of night where you know the, the principal character ultimately 
has his mind uh, totally taken over by Big Brother, whom he loves, a boot stamping on a human face, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this has the opposite ending, where in the end, he is able to rebel, if only through um, total retreat. And that's the ultimate Gilliam uh, fantasy and happy ending, the, 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 the idea that you could totally retreat from human society and human problems into the individual and away from the collective. Yes, but Sam's dream, his vision of being a hero, being a romantic, running away with this girl, his dream girl, having freedom, it gets destroyed by the system in which he is complicit in. And yeah. so for me, the big takeaway while watching Brazil is it's a cautionary tale and it's a fable about the dangers of not noticing what's going on around you, like specifically with what the government is doing or what big corporations are doing. I mean, we kind of do it every day, every minute of every of every day when we pick up our phone and we just let whoever it is, Google, whoever, just access all of our information, right? We're in this time right now where like people just kind of like go with it because what else are you going to do? Like you need the internet, you use your cell phone. So like there's no privacy anymore. No matter how hard you try, there really isn't. Like, I mean, even, even the app on your phone. If you want to know if it's going to rain or snow tomorrow, it's 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 pulling all of the data from your information if you want to use that app. And so that is why Brazil watching in 2020 with the Internet, the way things run nowadays with social media, et cetera, et cetera. It it, it is really terrifying because in this well, movie, they don't use technology. They use the ducks, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the ever present ducks. <laughs> I think they're in every oh, shot. <laughs> All the technology in this is kind of funny. I, I mean, it's just uh, it's so ridiculous. But yeah, we're you know we we constantly sign forms now or accept terms, and nobody reads over anything, and we're just you know everything's become so complicated that a normal human being can't understand it. You have to walk around with a lawyer constantly in order to actually know what you're signing off on, and we just sort of trust the system, which is of course what. I would I would think that Gilliam would think leads to a uh, world like that where you just trust the system so much that the system becomes everything and now you're just a cog in the machine. Um, and I can and that's where I think. All right, so for me, like the first half of this movie, I do consider an absolute masterpiece. Like just bravura filmmaking, unbelievable. I was I was completely sent. For the first half of this, uh, and I think it works so well. It's like somebody just trying to break free from all of that stuff. Um, you know, the, the second half, I think it, it tones down a little bit. I was going to say that it, it also shows you the danger of, of actually uh, meeting your dreams because <laughs> <laughs> it can be kind of underwhelming when that thing that you fantasized about forever uh, actually shows up in real life. Now, it didn't happen in the movie, but it did happen for me and my experience in the movie, watching the movie. But yeah, other than that, uh, I, I absolutely love the first half when he is that person trying, struggling to break free, even with all his flaws. At least there's a spark of life in him. Can, can I just point out something that isn't discussed a lot when people talk about this film, which is that as as much as uh, the Jonathan Price character, Sam, is keen to escape into a world of fantasy, there's something in his fantasies also that like he can never fully escape. Like there's all you know. For instance, he he's continually haunted by the faces of the dead. He uh well, and the thing that that really stuck out to me on this viewing 
is there is a really creepy Freudian through line in this film where um, Catherine Hellman plays his mom. She's great, by the way. Yeah. Um, And the movie continually conflates um, the uh, the Jill character with his mother, sometimes literally. And this is as well. So, like, even when Sam is permitted escape into fantasy there's there's still uh you know the creepy elements that find their way in so like all there's no complete escape from you know from these unsavory elements which i also find interesting in some way it is a happy ending for him maybe not for us we wouldn't want to be put in that position but in the movie like you said his dreams are like a horror film his real life is like a horror film i mean towards the end when he has the final dream sequence, he actually falls into a coffin, into like a pit of darkness. So that is why for him, I'm not sure if there was a better ending for this specific character. I, I'm sorry, I just gotta, I did not actually pick up on the Freudian thing. And now that I'm thinking back to the movie, like the first time that he uh, he sleeps with Jill, it's she's wearing his mother's wig. It's yeah. on his mother's bed. And clothes. God did not think about that at all. I mean, I know that she actually becomes the face of the mother in the in his in his lobotomized fantasy um, or lo- nightmare or whatever it was. But uh, God did not pick up on that. That's a good good call. It is weird not, that he not can to mention, never. Yeah, like Jim Broadbent, who's like one of many really funny supporting roles in this film. Um, at you know, at one point goes on at length uh, to him about his mother's tits and ours. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot going on. <laughs> it is sad that he in, in uh, Sam's fantasies he can never actually be the conquering hero. He just dreams of being the hero, and even in his fantasy, he's aspiring, inspiring hero, but not actually the hero. He never wins anything. Not really. He almost reaches victory and he never does. And so he can't even dream of being that, which is kind of sad and kind of tragic in a way, but also to me kind of funny. That's how pathetic, what, what such a pathetic creature that he is. He can still be pathetic and be the hero, I think, though, of the story. Yeah. I just wonder if his if his imagination has sort of like its limits, you know what I mean? Because of the world he lives oh, in. Clearly. Because, yeah. So his creativity can only go so far because of his upbringing, his surrounding society, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think every character in a movie would apply. Like, I mean, the Robert De Niro character, who I don't think we've even mentioned yet, uh, he yeah. is full out like the the rebel. He is the actual person who should have been arrested at the start of the movie. And I actually really like Robert De Niro in this movie because, I, I, like, I... I totally forgot he was in the movie. And so when I was watching the movie and when he first appears, I thought it was Jean Renault for a second. It's only when he starts talking because it's it's De Niro and I recognize his voice, right? Like if he was walking by me and I didn't actually look up at him but heard his voice, I would know Robert De Niro's walking by me because like he has that specific voice and he's like a big name actor. But I like him in this film because he plays against type, at least for the time in 1985. And I think he does a fantastic job. Um, I mean, the whole entire cast is great, but I'm really, really surprised how good De Niro works here. And it's it's interesting to know that he wanted the the role of um, of Jack Flint, Jack. 
Right. And then Terry Gilliam said, no, you're not going to get it because I already offered it to uh, Palin. And so it's like it's one of the very few times where someone actually turned down Robert De Niro. It's also interesting. and I only noticed this on this viewing that the two characters in the film who are the most actually heroic, which would be Jill and uh, and Tuttle, are the Americans. <laughs> like the, the, the Brits, the, the Brits are all, you know. Uh, I don't know. And then these two, then these two characters are just like you know, they're they're the swashbucklers of the movie. So of course they're the they're the Americans. The Tuttle character is a rebel, and if you're going to have your entire society be kind of stodgy British bureaucratic, you know, or or like you say, tittering or or wavering, uh, hedging, and that it makes sense to have the the one person who is living their own life be the American actor, uh, and having that played by Robert De Niro is is. It's lucky. It's lucky that that De Niro wanted this role. I think because I was trying to imagine who else could have played that to the same effect. De Niro makes an impact simply by being De Niro, and at this point, he was De Niro. I mean, he he yeah. had already won his you know Oscars, and uh, he, so he was. It wasn't like this was a starting out movie for him, and I'm only looking back knowing who he is now. He was a big guy at this point, um, so it does have an impact, and it, it does kind of represent a certain a certain attitude. Yeah, it, it's also interesting that he decided to cast Michael Palin as the villain because he could have easily played the hero because the character of Sam Lowry is so reminiscent of the characters he played in previous movies and TV shows. And yet, for whatever reason, Terry Gillen just decided he wanted him to play against type and he wanted him to play the character of Jack Flint. And I think he's amazing in the movie. Um, and it's not just his performance. I mean, it's also the way the character is written. Like, the fact that... He does these terrible things, and yet his eight-year-old daughter is, like, standing right next to him, but he doesn't, like, even think about it or blink. To him, it's just kind of like, it's just work, right? It's just like, like, there's one line where he says, I didn't get the wrong man. I was given the right man. If someone gave me the wrong man, then that's their fault, but I was given the right man, and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, like, for him, it doesn't matter if the man is innocent or not. It's just about him doing his job and not having this inconvenience of doing an additional mountain of paperwork, right? And, that, like, that's the thing, like... I mean, I kind of feel like you see this happening every day in our life where people just are lazy. They don't want to go through the system and do all of this paperwork. And and so they just like turn a blind eye. And it totally makes sense. He also represents sort of the insidiousness of completely drinking the Kool-Aid. People to him aren't people. His own daughter is. That's why he keeps forgetting her name. He doesn't even know which one it is. And he doesn't really care. She's just a thing that exists that he takes care of because that's what he's supposed to do because he's part of the machine. And and uh, the only time that you actually truly see him go through any emotions is when he discovers that he's going to have to interrogate Sam. And that emotion is one of utter selfishness. <laughs> it's like, how could you do this to me? Yeah. Because he's making him feel in that last minute. He's making him feel guilty, guilty about something and just actually have an emotion and think of Sam as a human being, a friend of his. Uh, he doesn't want to have those thoughts. He just wants to be able to go on with his his daily life. Palin as Jack is my favorite bit of casting in the movie because and it's it it you you wouldn't think that it would be because, you know, clearly it's Gilliam giving his buddy a role, uh, his old pal in Monty Python. But there he there's um there's a counterintuitiveness that works really, really well because he has this sort of genteel screen presence um, that works so beautifully when you realize that he's uh, a torturer and there's this um, there's this cognitive dissonance that works really well and one of my favorite scenes in the film is when he comes to Jack Lynn's office 
and they have this totally pleasant conversation and he's absolutely covered in blood (laughs) and he's and he's sort of oscillating between um sort of a pleasant conversational tone and like shaking with rage at his mirror um and he's pale and is absolutely key to making um some of those late scenes um as as chilling as they are Mm -hmm. and there's there's just something about the friendliness that makes it so chilling yeah yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because when he finally meets Jill and they have that sort of like car chase action sequence and they end up at um, at a shopping mall and a bomb goes off and Sam is like walking through the mall and he thinks that Jill was killed or potentially hurt and he sees all of the dead bodies and all of the people that are like bleeding and, and whatever. That's when I think it hits him. Like he actually notices the carnage. Because prior to that, like, there's one scene where he's sitting in a restaurant and a bomb does go off and he doesn't even think twice about helping anyone. He's like, I'm on my I'm on my lunch break. But once he meets Jill, he starts to notice what's happening around him and like how people are being like killed and murdered and uh, because of these quote unquote terrorist bombings. And so I think that is the scene which pivots his character and changes the whole focus of the movie. So I'm wondering, Patrick, you said like you think the first half of the movie is a masterpiece. At what point did you kind of like check out? Uh, when Jill comes into the picture. <laughs> I think when he finally meets her and they get through the whole – they go on the whole uh, truck chase. And from then on, his entire goal the, – the movie's entire goal seems to be about the relationship between him and Jill and whether or not this is going to work and can they escape and all this other kind of stuff. Whereas before it was – I kind of liked the pursuit. Uh, I liked him trying to break free. Uh, the the idea that he was he was investigating something that he was striking out on his own, that he was defying orders, and he, you know, he accepted a promotion and then completely ignores his job instead just to do this to to pursue this dream of his. Uh, I think there was a lot more inventiveness and fantasy in in the first half of the movie for that reason. And when he meets Jill, she is kind of a dud as a character. Period. And maybe that's because of the actress, and maybe that's because of the part that was written. I don't know. Um, but uh, there really wasn't a whole lot there, and she kind of brings the movie down for me. And it, it, it makes it, it – it finishes strong because I love the, the whole dream sequence and all the, the activity that goes on with that. And I love De Niro getting swallowed up by paper and then just sort of disintegrating into nothingness. Um, all the the visual inventiveness that was going on during that. I just think that there's something during the Jill sequences that just doesn't – you know and. Him running away from her that just doesn't quite work for me, even though that bombing in the in the shopping, you know, uh, mall really works really well. And that moment works really well. You know, um, I I used to think because it's it's uh, public record that Gilliam was not happy with Kim Grace's performance and he ed- ended up sort of taking out quite a few of her scenes in the final cut. But. On reviewing this film, uh, by the way, he wanted Ellen Barkin for that role, who I do think would have been great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's her fault. Like I, on rewatching the film, the the character is really inconsistent. Um, you know, there she has no like she has no consistent inner life, and maybe that was done on purpose. But she sort of she oscillates between hostility and warmth, like really arbitrarily. 
this is actually kind of a consistent problem with Terry Gilliam's movies is that he doesn't seem to have a lot of curiosity about the inner lives of women. Um, <laughs> you know, his his least problematic female character is probably Madeline Stowe in 12 Monkeys. And even she's kind of all over the place. But at least, you know, she has a job and interests and stuff like that. Um, it's a real problem in several of his other movies um, that he just he seems to really struggle with. It's a problem here because I don't think Terry Gilliam should ever include any sort of like subplot that revolves around a romance because in this movie it boils down to Sam asking her if they want to get down and dirty and she's like, are you interested in necrophilia or something like that? That line, <laughs> that line. Okay, that was funny, though. Come on. <laughs> it felt so out of place, though. It was funny. I, th I think it was funny for the wrong reasons. But but the thing about her is I do think she's a, a weak link. And I agree with Simon. I don't think it's her fault. I think it's because the movie has her at one point where she's like the tough rebel who's trying to like save a man's life or help this family. And then the next minute she's like the damsel in distress in one scene. She's, she's kicking them out of the car and there's this big action chase sequence in the next scene. She's, she's lying on a bed wearing his mom's clothes and her wig. And, and it just like, it's, it's, it's confusing. I'm not. And I think, I think that is why I agree with Patrick that, the second half of the movie visually stands out more than the first half of the movie, but I think the first half of the movie is structured better and it feels, it feels intact. It doesn't feel like there's bits and pieces that, that seem like they should have been cut out or rewritten. Um, so all in all though, I mean, there's so much to like about this movie. I, I don't even think we mentioned the production design, the set design. Uh, I mean, I already sort of like briefly mentioned the fact that well, when I watch this movie, I can't help but think of, uh, movies like Metropolis, right? Uh, but also film noirs from like the 40s. And I like the fact that he dresses the cast mm. and the supporting uh, cast and, the, you know, the people in the background. They look like they came out of a movie from the 1940s to the point where in the movie, uh, they actually do watch Casablanca <laughs> in order to escape their everyday mundane, like, uh, work of like the, 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 this mountain of paperwork. Once again, a mountain of paperwork. <laughs> like, it's just insane. Yeah, and there's you know there's a character named Harvey Lime, which is you know clearly a reference to the Fourth Man. Uh, there is a sequence late in the film, which is an obvious homage to Battleship Potemkin. There's all sorts of homages to classic film in this uh, sort of lurking around in this dystopia. Yeah, it, it it all it blends together to create kind of an otherworldly thing too. I mean, he's clearly not not trying to create a realistic world. So taking these stylistic elements from other movies and combining it into all, it's like, it, 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 I'm going to reference babe Two pig in the city. It's that kind <laughs> of like yeah. megalopolis, right? Where it just took everything from everywhere and jammed it all into one thing. And it becomes its own little unique world. Uh, so I, and I, that's what makes the movie so fun to watch. And I would actually argue that I think the first half is more visually interesting than much of the second half, uh, just because in establishing this world, he has so many like little unique sequences. I love the, 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 the sequence where Ian Holm is um, popping his head in and out of the door to see if his workers are actually slacking off or doing their job. And they time it perfectly uh, to make sure that they can still watch their Western and, uh, and also look like they're doing their work. It shows a little bit in that society that there is some hunger there. There is something. Uh, but they're also, you know, everybody's watching TV, too. Uh, you know, that they're, they're kind of like zoning out half the time. Uh, they're not really paying attention. So either they're doing their job in a zoned out way, like a machine, or they're just staring at a screen and zoning out. Um, interesting way of looking at things. Nobody's really doing anything as an individual except for sam eventually and or he's trying to and jill and obviously 
Tuttle, not Buttle. I think the reason why I like the visuals of the second half of the movie is because we get to see more of the world. We do get to see the city streets. We do get to see the skyscrapers, um, the enormous office building in which he works at. Um, like, the ministry is huge. It's, it's this massive building, and I like the fact that it has these corridors that look like they can go on forever and ever. And and even the dream sequence towards the end, like, I already mentioned the sequence in which he falls through a coffin. Like, I mean, the whole entire film, from start to finish, it's, it's, it's one of the most visually stunning movies i've ever seen like for me this movie like you can you can press pause at any point in time and you can have yourself a beautiful screensaver right but it's not just about the lighting it's not just about the cinematography it's not just about the set design it's not just, it's everything everything combined from the costumes to even like the camera shots or the lenses like i mean throughout the whole entire film and you see it in the opening uh, the opening scene and again towards the end especially where it's not necessarily a fisheye lens he uses like a long lens at close range and he creates this edge to the frame and eschews the vision of the audience. And also like what I do like about the first, say, like 90 minutes of the movie is, and right prior, like right up until he meets Jill face to face is that a lot of characters interact through broken barriers or through like a hole in the wall or a hole in the ceiling. Like they don't actually interact face-to-face a lot of them like i mean specifically like the, the main cast right or they're always put in a position where there's so much chaos happening around them that it's like i'm not even entirely sure if they're really like if they really can even have, be afforded time to really focus on on each other and what they're saying like it's 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 world where people are so isolated um you know and just so disconnected uh, again very similar to our world today you just replace the internet and social media and etc etc with the the reoccurring images of once again the ducks which are, are apparent and visible in every scene in this movie which by the way are always falling apart and i think he he's saying a lot about how technology like we rely on technology but then all of this technology is falling apart around these people that's making our lives even harder and the ducks kind of just represent bureaucracy as well. Their bureaucracy of technology. It, it just becomes so convoluted that eventually it breaks down. It becomes meaningless. It becomes, you know, omnipresent and you can't get a, get away from it. And you're completely and utterly reliant on it. Uh, I will say this, though. There is one, one human relationship that sticks out kind of strongly for me. And that is between Sam and uh, his boss, played by Ian Holm. They have these face-to-face interactions. They, you know, he asks him if he has, would like some tea. Uh, they do have conversations. And granted, Ian Holmes' character, you know, is is kind of motivated to just sort. Of, he's he's part of the system for sure, and he's but he's motivated to keep on Sam because Sam is very useful to him and can help him solve problems. But at the same time, Sam kicks his feet up on his desk and has a very casual, relaxed. Uh, presence when he when he's in that room when the two of them are just talking alone but then well, the, that disappears the, the implication to me is that and this is seen throughout the film in the lower rungs of society and in the bureaucracy there is more freedom there's the ability to to check out a bit you see it with the with the people watching old movies in the office you see it with his relaxed relationship with Ian home later in the movie when they're on the run um, you you get this quick shot of men in hazmat suits playing volleyball um, when they're when they're supposed to be working. You know, there's the before he accepts the promotion, you you get the sense that people in the lower rungs are less subject to this uh, relentless surveillance. So you trade uh, more of your freedom for more stability. Mm. And that shows with the Buttle family too that they actually act like a family. 
you know, yeah. the mother's reading a story and the kids playing around with guns, but whatever. Like <laughs> everybody acts like people in those sort of ghetto ghetto places. Well, I think at this point we need to take a break. Uh, we'll play another clip of Brazil and we'll get back with our questions. Here's a clip. Shut up. Jack, I'm innocent. Please help me. Jack, this is all a mistake. Please, Jack, take that mask off. Okay, that was another clip from Terry Gilliam's Brazil. And uh, now we're going to go through our tradition of asking some questions about this. And we always start with maybe the most positive one. Uh, I'm going to go around the horn. But Simon, since this is one of your favorite movies, since you're the, the guest on the, the show this week, what is your favorite scene from Brazil? I sort of consider Brazil to be a movie of moments rather than scenes. Uh, so I'm going to cheat a little bit and pick my my favorite moment. Um, and you've you've already highlighted it, but I, I wanted to focus in on it because I find it so haunting. Um, very late in the film, when we're well into Sam's lobotomy, uh, there's this sequence of daring do where, uh, um, you know, they blow up the ministry and they're, you know, running away from uh, from the, the powers that be. And then um, as they're escaping, um, even in this fantasy world, um, Tuttle doesn't make it out. And he um, at first he he gets one piece of paper stuck to his foot and he's trying to get it out. And then eventually he gets completely covered. And I think there's kind of a backwards filming effect where they're they're able to make it look like these uh, pieces of paper are, are sort of floating and then. Uh, and then getting applied to his body, and then eventually he's completely covered. He's uh, he's flailing around like actors do when they wear flame suits, except he's covered in paper. And eventually he completely dissipates. And it's I've always found that to be a bizarre and haunting image. And it's the one that always sticks with when I think about Brazil. It's the image that always stays with me. You stole my pick. You stole my pick. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that sequence, which I do believe is technically part of sam's final dream sequence it shows how tuttle who's the character who's the most rebellious he's like the, the guy who can maybe potentially bring down the system he's smuttered by all of this paperwork it just to the point where it just eats him up and he completely disappears like simon says and i think that speaks volumes for the system the world and why this movie is so incredibly horrifying um because it's his character it's not just anybody and Again, when I talked about the endless amount of paperwork, and in this case, the guy just disappears, like vanishes into thin air because of paper. It's a great sequence to sort of characterize the whole movie with, not just for how the, the feeling it engenders, but also because it's a great showcase of the film's um, analog practical effects. 
that like I, I watch I've seen that sequence so many times and I, I'm still I would need to have it broken down for me how exactly they did it on this viewing. I really uh, I really appreciated um, that Gilliam. I mean, obviously, he's working with editors who are helping, but Gilliam is a master of um, of using editing to make effects seamless and convincing. Um, you see it right at the beginning of the film when that uh, that's that a guy's walking past a storefront and it explodes. And it's the most simple thing in the world to make that work, which is that the the person is cut out of the out of the out of the shot a frame before the explosion starts. And you under you understand how it, how it works. It's very simple, but it's really nicely executed. And that's a, gr- a great example of how effects work throughout this film, where if you're really, really looking for it. You know how the magic trick works, and it's not complicated, but it's just beautifully executed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, for my favorite scene, I, I'm going to go with something a little more simple, where the 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 practical effects are easy to spot. It's not really even an effect. Uh, I just like the whole setup of it, and it's very Charlie Chaplin-ish. Uh, the scene when he finally gets his office in the um, industry, or what? It's the <laughs> information, information retrieval. retrieval. Yeah, uh, when he when he finally gets his office, and he's setting up his desk and the guy next door starts pulling on the desk to get more space. To me, that scene, just kind of the back and forth tug of war that goes on for neither one of them has enough. And they're both fighting against each other in a futile, a futile little, uh, war that, uh, that, that basically was set up by the people that they're working for. Um, that that little tug of war back and forth for me, I kind of love that. And when he goes over and talks to his his uh, next door neighbor, the office his office next door neighbor, and he wants to borrow his console, and the guy's very protective, even though he doesn't even know how to use it. He claims that he does, and he's a whiz at it, but uh, it's his right. It's his little bit of property, and he's going to absolutely defend it. <laughs> like the struggle as Jonathan Price goes for the console, and the guy physically is blocking him and physically pushing him back almost. Um, just their their little struggle of trying to get resources in some way, just to carve out a little space for themselves. That to me represents a lot of uh, what this movie is all about. Guys, you're killing me. I'm at a disadvantage because now you just you took my second pick. <laughs> <laughs> that, that oh man, that's such a great scene. That's the such problem with going last. I guess I guess if I had to pick a third scene, I would probably pick the torture chamber in which they actually shot the sequence in a cooling tower. I I just love the the set, the fact that it's shot in a cooling tower. I love once again the wide angled lenses, quote unquote, like sort of like fisheye lenses, um, and the point of view shot. And at one point when he is freed and they they run past the secretary who's typing at a rapid pace, what is actually happening? Like she's actually detailing and like chronicling everything that's happening in that very moment. So I guess the torture sequence would be my third pick, just because visually it's 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 stunning. And I also uh, I noticed on this viewing that. Um, there's a, an additional sense of unreality to this film when you notice that there are things in the fantasy sequences that seem to foretell what's going to happen later. Like, for instance, um, the the ghouls that are that are keeping uh, the Kim Grace character chained to this cage uh, have these weird, creepy baby masks 
mm-hmm. um, which we then later see on uh, covering Michael Palin's face uh, in a very creepy close up uh, later in the in the torture sequence. So there's there's a, a weird sense that maybe the entire film is is happening through this um, in, in a in a fantasy flashback from this lobotomized man's uh, perspective. All right. So after that, we also have to ask if there's one thing that you could change about Brazil, Simon, what would it be? Um, I mean, I think we've already sort of talked about it, which is that, uh, you know, originally, again, I would have said maybe recasting uh, the Jill character, but uh, mm. I, I could I could tell on this viewing that that wouldn't suffice. I think um, they needed to commit to either her being. Uh, a real person who's deeply annoyed by by the uh, the Jonathan Price character and just wants nothing to do with him, uh, at least in reality. Uh, I think having her be uh, totally dismissive of him and not wanting to do anything with him in reality, and then being, uh, you know, uh, the damsel in distress who actually loves him and wears his mother's clothes in his fantasy would have actually been really effective. Um, they kind of muddle that in in the final product. Um, that or give her more of an inner life, give her a perspective, make her more active, uh, and make her more consistent. Uh, I think either route would have been fine. I think this middle path they chose doesn't really work. Yeah, I think there's no question. I mean, that's obviously, you know, that's my pick as well. There's no question that her character is the biggest flaw in this film, the single biggest flaw. Um, I, I wish she would have just stayed a fantasy, to tell you the truth, in some way that she would have been out of reach. I almost would have written out her real life version and just had this fantasy character that was uh, that maybe he always glimpsed from a distance, but was never able to reach. Kind of like Richard Dreyfuss's character in American Graffiti. Just you're never, ever, ever going to, to get that. Uh, it's just off in the distance. I, I would have liked to see, because that's kind of, you know, he never was going to be able to break free from the society anyway. And so why ever actually meet her and get to spend a night with her and get to know her or anything like that? I think uh, there should have been no fulfillment. That's what I would have changed. Good. So you want the movie dark. <laughs> dark. Kind of, just it, what it needs. It would, <laughs> and I think it would have been funnier to me, too. <laughs> Rick, what about you? Oh, boy. There is a lot I would change. I <laughs> would... Well, no, not in like I'm not trying to be super negative here. I'm just saying that I mean clearly the movie has flaws, but I think I I was going to say I would change the running time, but technically they did. In fact, there's three versions. I just think maybe it's my fault that I went out and watched the longer version. Uh, I did feel it was a little too long, and I'm pretty sure I would still think that the version Patrick saw is a little too long. But I'm actually going to pick the musical score. Uh, because like this this movie is so abrasive, so in your face, and it's so loud. Like the, the actual sound design, you know, for the sound mixing. Forget about the actual score. And I think that the music is just too much in a lot of the scenes for me personally. And so when I was watching the movie, and this is why I say that I think this movie is fantastic. It's it's a work of art. I understand why people call it a masterpiece. But it's hard for me to enjoy watching a movie because I had such a headache at the end of the, at the end of like the two and a half hours. I just like it was worse than listening to Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems, which, by the way, is my favorite movie of last year. Scream and yell for two hours. Right. It's just so in your face. It's so loud. And I don't think it works for the majority of the film. I do like the inclusion of the song Brazil. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't they record a version with Kate Bush doing the vocals? 
not. Well, I mean, if they did, it's not in the movie. Uh, well, I'm wondering if it's in a TV cut, and I'm, I'm just. Anyways, whatever. Uh, yeah, it's just the music. Like I would just tone down the music, or I don't know. Like there's there are scenes where it works perfectly, and there's a lot of scenes where. It, to me, it's it overpowers the scene, and uh, like even like the, the the scene which you're talking about when when they're fighting for the desk, right, for for office space, and I, I love that whole entire sequence because it calls back to silent films with Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, and his performance is amazing. But you have this score, this 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 musical score that overpowers the scene. So like, let me just enjoy their performance. So that to me is if 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 I could change one thing, it would be that man. And it's 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 you know the thing is Patrick, I don't ever really complain about the musical score on this podcast yeah, we haven't brought um, that up very often That's well because true. the thing is it's like music can invoke such a strong reaction from people like if you watch a movie and you turn off the sound watch it in mute you will have a completely different reaction to the movie you know what i mean like especially if it's like a horror film or in this case like a dystopian uh, like a film that takes place in a dystopian future which is a dark comedy at the same time it is sort of like a horror film like it does change your emotional reaction from watching a movie and uh, i would actually like to watch this movie uh, and press mute on my controller just so i can like soak in the visuals and 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 really take more notice of the physical performances of the actors which i think are uh, i mean apart from like maybe one actress um i think they just do a fantastic job Interesting. All right. Well, back to the positive, though. I think that this is where we're going to get, I think, a little more into the art direction, which you wanted to bring up. Uh, I have a feeling that's going to come up with this. But who do you guys think is the MVP of this this movie? Simon, we'll go with you first. Um, I'm going to cheat a bit. And... Um, I mean, we're, we're, I'm sure we'll talk about the the effects and the set design and all that stuff um, when you guys talk. But the I think what really helps carry the film and make it uh, and and make it less um, less onerous to deal with this uh, really dark vision is the um, I'm gonna can can I can I nominate like a set of people. Yeah, uh, and just say the um, the support that it has this incredible supporting cast who are just really keyed in to the absurd comedy of the film. I'm thinking specifically of um, Bob Hoskins, Ian Holm, um, Jim Broadbent, um, some of whom, like I guess, these people weren't really known yet, but um, I would think Bob Hoskins was at least, and um, as as well as the the actor playing. I don't have his name handy right now, but the actor playing Bob Hoskins, like comedic partner, I guess. Um, They. Wonderful. uh, They're these really outsized cartoonish, silly performances um, that, uh, that add a a sense of much needed sort of like levity and broadness to this very dark vision. And um, I think they are so key to making the movie, um, as as watchable as it is i could definitely agree with that i mean uh, there is something about that they also bring the right tone there's a little bit of foreboding to them especially hoskins i mean he's got just the right tone of levity and there is an underlying threat there uh which you know basically describes the tone of the movie in general 
Uh, supporting cast is is absolutely fantastic in this. The whole cast, like we say, and I, I we can't necessarily blame um, the actress who plays Jill for that. It is an underwritten role, so you know until we see the rest of the character that supposedly got cut, it's going to be really hard to criticize her performance. Um, Rick, who would you pick? Okay, so I do not like Terry Gilliam. I do not. I do <laughs> not like that they're. Yeah, I personally do not like the director, so I'm not going to choose him. <laughs> That's just I don't thing. blame you. <laughs> but so what I'm going to do is, uh, yeah, we've talked about the set design and the production values across the board are fantastic. But I'm actually going to go with the cinematographer. And the reason why I'm going to go with the DOP is because, like, for example, you can have this set, um, say, like, the um, any, any pick any set in, in the movie, like uh, the apartment sequence, whatever. And he does such a great job with with the lighting that he can actually hide the flaws and make that set look 10 times better than it actually looks. And you get these beautiful shots, which again, remind me of the best film noir movies from like the thirties, forties and fifties. If not like something like Fritz Lang's M or Orson Welles, the trial, there's just these incredible, incredible shots that just look like they were lifted from these movies from like 1940s film noir. And I'm a huge fan of film noir. So overall, I think the lighting is, is brilliant. And the reason why is because every scene, every interior, every interior set is so different than what came before it. So he has to come up with the most, um, you know, the most clever ways to, to, to light each and every single one of these sets. And, and I mean, like to the, to the point where, like I said, they shot in this giant cooler tower and yet he found a way to make that look like it was like a spaceship or something. It was just, it's, it's, I just have to give it to the cinematographer, but a lot of people would give it to Terry Gilliam because to be fair, he is a type of person who would obsess over storyboards and pre-production. So before they even go into making this movie, he knows exactly how he wants everything to look, right? And, I mean, he also wrote the script and he directed the film. And he used to be an animator. So he he has, like, a good understanding of how to bring um, these scenes to life using practical effects and special effects. So, I mean, if I'm not being an asshole, I would give it to the director, but I'm actually just going to give it to the cinematographer. <laughs> He he's an underrated director of actors. Um, I mean, we're not really going to talk about Twelve Monkeys today, but I think it's kind of it's relatively uncontroversial to say that he probably got elicited Bruce Willis's best ever performance in Twelve Monkeys. Um, and you know, he also he's at least indirectly responsible for uh, eliciting the uh, great performances I was praising earlier. Um, I'm not sure what accounts for his facility with actors, at least male actors. Um, but, uh, he seems to have a very, he seems to have a very specific idea of, of what he wants and is, and is able to elicit that, which is not always something directors have both of. By, by the way, I'm a huge fan of his movies. Just, just so you guys know. Just not him. No, I, I get it. Yeah, I can completely understand that and uh, agree with you. And I'm still going to give him the MVP on this. This is his imagination. Although there's a part of me that believes that Tom Stoppard contributed heavily to this being an yeah. actual intelligible screenplay. <laughs> or sorry, like an actual like. Uh, oh. He he gives Follow it discipline and structure. 
Yeah, and plus, I would, I, I think a lot of the wit may have come from Stoppard as well. Uh, I, I can't say for sure. I mean, obviously, Gilliam was around absurdist humor as well. So with Monty Python, he clearly, uh, you know, is going to have the ability to write some good stuff. But I feel like a lot of the good lines in this might have come from Stoppard. Nevertheless, I am going to give it to Gilliam because this is ultimately his vision and his imagination. And like you said, it, it's a movie that he clearly was throwing everything into because it was obviously hard to make. And he may thought he would never get another chance to do this. And it's all up there on, on the screen for better or for worse. All of his strengths and weaknesses are right there. And they yeah. really shine. The strengths really shine in this movie. Uh, more so than even some of his other ones. Uh, it's it, This is like the, the quintessential Terry Gilliam movie. This is what I think of when I think of his movies. Uh, even though I've liked many, many other of his you know, movies. It's just uh, this is the one now that I, I thought of it even before when it didn't strike me as much, you know, when I saw it in college 20 years ago, that is still the movie though, that I always thought of when I thought of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that I've seen it recently, I'm definitely, I mean, now it's seared into my brain more and I'm still going to think of it as him. It's worth noting that Terry Gilliam did uh, write the final draft. No, he collaborated with it, you know, as we mentioned with a couple other people, but he did write the original you know, the original draft with another writer, apparently, that uh, doesn't receive any credit. All right. So that brings us to uh, does it stand the test of time? Um, yes. I mean, <laughs> the uh, I will I will say w- one thing about the score, um, which is uh, this is relevant, I promise. Um, you know, a, a lot of films from the 80s are relying on um you know, 80s sounding scores, a lot of synthesizers, a lot of um, a lot of reverb. And uh, one thing that you do get from um, from the score and we keep talking about it. So we may as well just mention uh, the music is by um, <laughs> balls. Is it Michael came? Yeah, Michael Kamen. Michael Kamen uh, did did this lushly orchestrated score um and it is much more evocative of 1940s film, classic film, than um, than anything in the 80s. So um, the film d- isn't isn't uh, tied to uh, 80s aesthetics in a way that dates a lot of other films. Um, but I mean, more importantly, it's uh, you know, its themes are timeless. Its execution is fairly timeless. I think their their efforts to make a timeless setting and a timeless aesthetic are um are really effective and um i i think the movie the effect of the film hasn't changed in the 35 years that it's come out it doesn't feel like an like a like something that was of its time and you had to be there or whatever i, I think it, it's it's aged very well by the way i should mention that robert pratt is the cinematographer and yes he's also the same dop who worked with gilliam later on to do 12 monkeys which is my favorite film from the director uh, do you think that Brazil stands the test of time, Rick? I'm with Simon on because I mentioned it earlier when when they when they decided to create the vision for this world and produce these incredible sets, they mixed old technology with current technology with what they thought you would see in the future. So you you know if you take for example the computer, it looks sort of like a laptop, but yet a hybrid of a laptop with a typewriter with the screen which could probably project the image across the room on the wall type thing. You know what I mean? So it's like, because 
the movie looks timeless and feels timeless because it's not specifically set in one place and they don't necessarily say when it takes place. It's just sometime somewhere in the 20th century. And also because thematically and like what it's addressing and, and the problems of the world are are I think something that we will always face. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. so yes, hundred percent, it stands the test of time. And also just because it's a really good movie. I wanted to specifically highlight something you you just sort of hinted at, which is that um, I uh, the use of technology I think is another reason that it um, it's it's aged really well because it has these very specific sets of inventions and gadgets um, that of course aren't real and um, can't be tied to any specific era. And I specifically love the, the the monitors appear to be these actually very small screens, which are then blown up with the aid of these flat, um, uh, flat displays, which has the weird effect of seeming more modern because they're essentially like flat screen monitors that just happen to look awful. Mm-hmm. Um, even look at the car he drives. Yes. So the car he drives looks like a car that was actually made in the 1960s or sorry, 1950s. And there's this famous uh, photograph of Steve McQueen driving the car. And I, I think even James Dean. Right. But at the same time, it also looks like the car from the movie Speed Racer. And I don't know. Do you credit him? The crew, the, the, the production? Like, I mean, there's so many people that worked on this film, right? The it's prop manager. Yeah. Um, I think obviously it all stems from the look that he's going for, but yeah, you you can't just credit one person. He didn't probably sketch all of this stuff, even though I'll bet he sketched a lot of it. Uh, and then somebody had to, to build a thing or come up with a thing, um, you know, modify it. Maybe I'm but telling yeah. you, man, it must help that he is an animator because he started as an animator. So he would have no problem drafting up storyboards like a lot of directors they can't draw and so they can't actually put their vision to paper but he can yeah yeah and he would have created just the the overall aesthetic for this thing uh well in advance no doubt so anybody working in the art department would have been going off of his vision but yeah because of that because the way it looks and more so than the way that looks because of the universal themes it is a theme that will always be there is always going to be that constant push and pull uh just like in the little the little office scene um, that's going to make these sort of anti-totalitarian and bureaucratic uh, movies very always relevant, always relevant. They'll never be irrelevant because there will always be massive, you know, corporations, governments, things like that. Last question. Well, it doesn't pass the Howard Hawks test. So the Howard Hawks test is, you know, a movie is a great movie. if It has three good scenes and no bad ones. Right. So, um, does this pass that test? My early indication is no. I always, I, you know, I always want to say it for movies that I really like, but I think there are bad scenes in this movie. At least one. I think this is a great movie. I think it's mm-hmm. a near masterpiece. The reason why I don't think it's a masterpiece is because I do think it has flaws and problems, specifically the character of Jill. I do think it has one or two bad scenes. Um, I think his masterpiece is The Fisher King. But it is an amazing movie, regardless if it passes the Howard Hawks test. I don't think it has any bad scenes. I think it has some beats that don't work. I think it has some character aspects that don't work. Whenever I watch it, there's never a scene where I get to it and I'm like, and I'm, you know, hoping, wishing that it wasn't there or wishing that I could skip it or whatever. Um, there's no individual actors. No, uh, there's there's some moments 
supplements, there's some there's some beats, there are some aspects I would change or that I'm not wild about. But whole scenes, nah. But you don't think it's too long? Ah. Uh, I mean, if it's too long, that means there's a problem somewhere. Yeah, you. you yeah. Maybe I think, I mean, I think the 132 minute cut is better than the 142, but is there a specific scene that I could point to and say that's bad? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, sometimes editing can make something, you know, can make something feel longer than it really is. Uh, I mean, and the movie could actually be longer and yet feel shorter just because the pacing works yeah. smoother. So I don't, I would cut out a scene though. I would cut out the car, th- the, the whole um, truck scene where she's kicking him out of there and trying to swerve him off and all that kind of stuff and their whole interaction in there i actually i i i don't like it at all i didn't think it worked at all it showed off that they had zero chemistry that's all it served to do it showed that the two of them had no chemistry and that their romance wasn't going to work from then on out um that's the only scene that i thought doesn't work for me at all that's the one i would cut so for me, it's completely the opposite. I would cut out the sequence in which he brings her to the apartment and he seduces her because because that's that's what I don't like about her character is that in that scene, there is no chemistry because there is no chemistry. There's no chemistry between the two actors in real life and there's no chemistry between the two characters in the movie. But then they they pivot and she sort of like falls under his spell, which doesn't make any sense to me. Like I just didn't buy into it. And so. When we do get towards the end of the movie and all of a sudden she's like more of like a damsel in distress and he's saving her. That's what I didn't like about it. Specifically that bedroom scene. Like, yes, it's funny. The necrophilia joke. I just don't think it fits in this movie. So it's a I personal taste, a right? Fantasy. Yeah, I, I, I believe in that scene for that could actually work well if we never knew her as a, as a real person. And the problem is that truck scene tries to establish her as a real person, but it doesn't know what kind of person she's really supposed to be. And so it never really establishes anything. However, I think that bedroom scene could still work as his fantasy because, well, as Simon pointed out, there's, there's a lot more going on with that fantasy than I had previously thought. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that scene can still work in the whole, you know, I don't think the necrophilia joke is out, out of place because I think that's he's having his weird little perverted fantasy right there. Yeah, I think uh, the, it, it points out that the real problem with this dystopia is that for some reason there are no therapists. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I think I think I think the thing is, OK, if you had that scene and I know this changes the whole entire movie, but just hear me out really quick. So if you had that scene, the truck scene, and then later they actually do a better job of fleshing out her character establishing this relationship between these two and actually building a chemistry between them and that scene would be okay because that's their first meeting and so in their first meeting she's not going to take to him right away it's what happens afterwards that diminishes that scene you, you, know, you see what i'm trying to say that, here that yeah. isn't what happened for me though i i instantly hated the the truck scene <laughs> <laughs> I, well, it wasn't because I was anticipating everything else. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't like it at all. Uh, I, I like the I back like that and scene. forth. She goes. She goes through from hating him to kind of liking him to hating him to kind of liking him to. I don't know what that was happening with her character, but they were trying to make her be real. Like he's finally met his real fantasy woman, and uh, it, it didn't really. Yeah, uh, they, they they needed to lean in a direction. I, think they leaned in any direction but there's something to be said about a man who won't give up even if he's putting his life in danger to the point where he gets kicked out of the truck like three or four times and he's still hanging on hanging on for dear life because he wants to get to know her and he finally wins her trust so i don't know personal yeah. taste um but yeah it's 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 tricky because the, the thing about the howard hawks test is like this movie has like maybe 10 great scenes maybe 12 maybe 20 
But if you have one bad scene in the eyes of the critic, in this case being me or Patrick, well, then it fails the Howard Hawks test. So it doesn't mean that the movie isn't great or a masterpiece or whatever. It just means it fails the Howard Hawks test. It's possible. But Patrick, uh, Simon, you disagree. So I disagree. And I'm the guest. So honor, honor my, uh, honor my <laughs> point of view. <laughs> that sounds good to me. I will at least agree that it is a masterpiece, warts and all. Uh, it is a absolutely fantastic, fantastic movie. All right, with that, I think we're going to wrap things up. Um, Simon, where can we find you online? Can we you, find you? You can't. Online? You can't. Not anymore. Go away. <laughs> You're one of the terrorists now, Simon. That's right. <laughs> all right, Rick. Well, you could actually you could find. God, do we have an article? We have an article for you from you about Brazil. Yeah, I, I wrote it many years ago, and now it's back online, and I will not be revisiting it because I don't like to read old writing. Oh, okay. All right. Well, but the readers can re- reread it or read it for the first time. Uh, Rick, where do where can we find you online? So I run the official Twitter handle for Goomba Stomp, which is Goomba Stomp Mag, M-A-G at the end. Uh, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on any social media platform. The podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, of course, on the website. It's just about everywhere. So goombastomp.com, sortedcinema.com. And if you do like the show, do leave us a rating. And thank you so much to everyone who's left a rating so far. Yeah, it's always great when we get to see that. I mean, getting any sort of feedback is always nice, even if somebody's telling us we're we're garbage. Uh, Hey, at least we know they listened. (laughs) But uh, yeah, leave a rating if you can. And, uh, you know, if you want to leave a review or a comment on the website, that's always fantastic. Uh, And of course, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Sword Cinema. I don't tweet a whole lot, but uh, if you tweet at me, I will tweet back. Um, Yeah, and hopefully I'll be writing more for to stop pretty soon here went through a rough month of work but it's time to get back to writing about movies that should do it for today this week's episode we'll be back next week uh, my name's larry sam larry i've been told to report to mr warren 30th floor sir you're expected Anyone to search me? No, sir. You want to see my ID? No need, sir. Well, I could be anybody. No, you couldn't, sir. This is information retrieval. The lifts arrive, sir. <laughs>